Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 637. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Back on the airwaves once again. It's really still strange this, doing every fortnight. But we're here again. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. The main fiction is The Callisto Stakes by Doug E. Suarez. And then, it's actually taking me breath away, I'm that excited. We have Fiction Crawler number 18 by Matthew Sanborn Smith. Yes. And what was really sweet, Matt says, you'll, you'll have. Um, <laughs> it's been almost three years. Since Fiction Crawler 17 hit the airwaves. And he says he'll have the next one ready for 2032. So look forward to that. There's a link on as well to Matthew and all the stories that Matthew talks about. That's coming in day show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, we'll jump straight into the main fiction. And it is Doug C. Souza's The Callisto Stakes. Now, this story first appeared in Asimov's in September 2018. And there's a couple of links to Doug's sites. He says he loves hearing from readers of his work, so don't hesitate to send him a question or comment. Just watch out. He's been known to write a few paragraphs while responding, especially if it's a question about writing and how he gets into the business. Doug was super stoked to have the Callisto Stakes featured in Asimov's and is excited to have it read with Starship Sova. Many of his stories have appeared in publication and podcast, which is an honour since both have done so well. Meaning Starship Sova, that's what he's on about. When I got the news that Callisto Stakes would be performed by Starship Sova, he walked around the house shouting and cheering in some words that can't be broadcast. Luckily, his four-year-old was a preschool at the time. Now, just give a little insight into the story origin. Doug says he started several versions of the story and then found that the, the nanos were the most interesting protagonists since they had the toughest struggle. Then the thought struck me of how much tougher their job would be if their host, host didn't care too much for his own life. He says he hasn't read a story from a nano's point of view, so he was stoked to write one. I'm sure you'll get some emails listing titles of stories you always do with the same idea. But honestly, it was an original to me at the time. There are some great stories out there about AI, whether in fighter jets or interwebs, ends up making the moral choice in contrast to their human counterpart. As an optimist, this gives me hope that maybe all AI being developed will aid and guide human, humankind rather than travel back in time to terminate us. Now, this story is narrated by Will Staggle. 
This is Will Steggles' second contribution to Starship Sova. He remains sequestered in Tucson, Arizona, somewhere between his house and the post-apocalyptic bunga he calls the Liquid Center. He'd like to give a shout-out to his drummer, Stacy, who would never let a little thing like a pandemic stand between her and her throne. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Callisto Stakes by Doug C. Souza. Read by Will Stagel. Above all else, we must keep our host alive. Our primary function is to enhance cellular linkages, but we also eradicate microtoxins. We can augment neural communications, both electrical and chemical, for optimal nerve performance and reflex. But we are prisoners within our host body. We can only watch. He's 16, and he's entered an illegal race that takes place topside, away from the pressurized safety of the subterranean villages. 25 to 38% of the entrants don't come back. Either their left letters crash in a muted fireball, or a small crack in their vessel becomes deadly within the near vacuum of the surface. 21% are injured after being arrested. The patrollers turn a blind eye at the start of the race, but then make game out of tracking down and attacking left letters during the meat of the race. Our host is an angry young man, and we are worried he may be trying to kill himself. Again. Currently, our host is checking and rechecking the control panel. He has examined each of the vehicle's readouts several times. We believe he is obsessing. The race will begin soon. We too make sure we are running at optimal levels, and we recheck every incoming report from various nanosquads across all bodily systems. Yes, we too are obsessing. The Jovian light crawls up behind the row of racers. The white-pink glow from the large gaseous planet is said to be majestically beautiful. We see it as majestically foreboding. The race is a circumnavigation around Callisto at speeds ranging from 700 to 800 clicks per hour. No other moon has such a race. A few hours ago, we learned that it's not only our host's life in danger. How are you back there? He asks his younger sister, Sandy. She doesn't answer. Instead, she's gazing out the Levsletter's canopy window at the icy surface riddled with crater walls, sudden cliffs, and spikes jutting out through the ground like broken teeth. So, you're okay? Our host asks. Great, Sandy answers. Her faint voice drifts through the Envirosuit's comm system. This is so... just wow! Our host smiles, but we can tell by his pulse rate and gastric acid levels that he's scared. Yeah, it is wow. Sandy's never been outside the lower channels of the Callisto underground. We came up for the first time two weeks ago, when our host snuck out to record radiation and atmospheric levels. Any Callistoans discovered topside are subject to heavy fines and increased work detail. Penalties may be accrued and redistributed to subsequent generations. We can't determine the precise reason why he would risk bringing her along. Her added weight will only slow us down. We are worried he plans to have them both die in the race. It has to do with her busted lip and the bruises on her back. The first time our host found her like that, he took her to his hiding spot at the far end of the underground channels. He held her through the night. The dark cavern was moist and cold, a place where water collected on every wall, and dripped endlessly from the ceiling. The grimy drops fell on our host for several hours. He didn't budge. He held her, smoothing her hair, until she stopped crying and fell asleep. It's just the beginning, 
our host had whispered to himself. I thought she'd be safe. That morning, he awoke to the feel of her small hands playing with his. Sandy would make little balls out of his hand and then pull his fingers apart. She mumbled something as he stirred. What? he asked. We're just like rats and roaches, she said, her words slightly lisped from her cut lip. We just scurry around and then we die down here. Scurry, he asked. Little one like you, using such words, you're too good for this world, Sandy. She ignored the compliment and hummed to herself. They stayed there for several hours. Our host had commanded us to transfer and assist her nano squads so she could heal more efficiently and quickly. We spared what we could and then returned as ordered. Sandy explored the channels where our host was in silence. After realigning the returning nano squads, we ran basic protocols while listening to his breathing. His breaths came in slow and peaceful, but we knew his mind was in a flurry. If only we had access to his internal registers and thinking, we may have been able to help. The day after he found little Sandy beaten, he began gathering and stealing components to build a love letter. He didn't opt for any of Unicorp's black market sponsorships. Instead, he kept the endeavor a secret. Our host was focused on the love letter, and when he focuses, he becomes most dangerous to himself. The Neuro Nano Squad sought a way to break through our primary edicts. We can't stop him unless he puts himself in direct and immediate harm. We are frustrated. We know there's danger coming, but we are unable to do anything about it at this time. A series of flashes sprinkle across the sky in the distance, the signal to start the race. Our host ignites the hydrazine rockets. The race gate clamps attached to the runners hold the vehicle in place. They will release shortly. The left letter rattles. This makes us nervous. We should be granted access to assist in keeping structural bonds strong. Some hosts utilize their nano squads by incorporating them into the machinery, but our host holds the yoke and does not give the vehicle merge order. We hear little Sandy's breathing on the comm. We concentrate on the sound for a moment and enjoy the distraction. There's always music in the way she breathes. Now she is excited or scared. We can't tell. Our host was much younger when he was first beaten. We learned, as he did, that the beatings never end. Two years later, he tried to jump off one of the chasms of the underground. We locked his left calf just in time by inflaming the gastrocemius and soleus tendons. Luckily, enough nanosquads were present to alter blood flow via iron oxides, while a second crew warmed the gold nanoparticles with their laser ports. After that, we inflamed his trachea to slow his breathing until he passed out and someone found him. During the race, we will scrutinize our host's actions and wait for the precise millisecond to strike should he try anything. We will probably fail, and he will succeed in killing himself and Sandy. Our host jolts as the indicator beacon in the distance turns from red to yellow. He locks his gaze on the sprawling icy landscape. We alert all nanosquads throughout his body, especially those patrolling his fine motor nervous systems. Above all else, we must keep our host alive. The surrounding engines hum in a muffled growl. The second yellow light blinks. You can't really hear him, huh? Sandy yells into the comm. But wow, you can feel those other left sliders shaking the ground. Then the light is green. The clamps release, and our host's left slider shoots across the icy surface. The change in G-force has the inner ear nanos scrambling to keep him steady. Our host surveys the blurred moonscape 
takes a deep breath, and squints hard at the land. His hands stay wrapped around the yoke. Muffled thumps pound the pilot box canopy like some invisible beast trying to break in. Little Sandy cries out. Don't worry, hon. That's just whiffs of atmosphere spitting at us, our host assures her. It means we're on the right track, okay? An opposing left letter, a much larger left letter, sideswipes our vehicle. Our host catches the hit just in time and steers away from the brunt of the contact. The vehicle bucks under the thrashing for several long seconds while our host regains control. He writes the left letter and has us back on course. He doesn't say anything. Little Sandy doesn't say anything. Our host finally exhales and starts breathing again. Other left's letters fly by, their paths already splitting apart into various routes. Two left's letters, 4.72 meters to our right, bump into one another, battling for position. Something breaks off the larger one, and a spray erupts from the rear O2 tank. The lower runners on our left's letter absorb the shocks from the jagged surface, but the vehicle's nose shifts side to side and needs constant correcting. Even as a novice, our host is a magician. He's able to write the left's letter with the slightest touch. We keep his muscle control in check and his eyes focused. Mounds of compounded silicon whip by just meters from the vehicle. The pilot box rattles with each hit from the uneven ground below. He finds a smooth stretch of land and then surveys the extended map on the console. The readout shows that we are in just as good as any position to win should we maintain course. Three other left's letters sustain heavy damage and will not be a threat to winning the purse. For a moment, which is a long time when you can run multiple calculations per nanosecond, we convince ourselves that our host is simply in it for the prize. The weekly increase in rations and credit purse aren't much, but maybe there's something else that comes with winning the Callisto stakes that we missed. His father had said something along those lines a couple days before the race. Our host was in the hideaway where he secretly worked on his love letter. You always got something to prove, eh? His father had said as he ducked into the chamber. Our host didn't answer at first. His heart rate and adrenaline were too fired up. Just trying to do good for us, he said after we helped him steady his nerves. What do you think? You'll win and then move you and Cassandra out? Ain't no place on Callisto better than where you got it. He spit. It landed on the left sledder's left mag repressor. Our host shrugged. Maybe we could try for the southern region, or even Ganymede. You almost got cleared for transfer there. His father's bloodshed eyes lit up as he lumbered over. Where'd you hear that? You said it a long time ago. No, I didn't. I never had a shot at nothing other than this. He spit on the left sledder again. Then we'll just take the purse, our host offered. His father grabbed our host by the scruff of his coveralls. A little extra grub and a bit of credits ain't gonna do squat. You're still under my care. Cops go straight to me, you hear? Ain't no little prize gonna be enough for me to give up my guardian caretaker, comps. Don't work that way. You're my blood. That means the purse and everything is mine. I know, our host said, turning away to avoid the inevitable strike. Just thought maybe it was worth it, right? We readied a tissue-grid nano-squad near our host's zygoma bone, just below his eye. This is where his father usually starts. His father considered what our host said, then shook it away. You're always up to something. You can't settle yourself down. The backhand didn't come. 
His father simply released his hold. Wish you had more muscle to you than brains. Then maybe we'd get decent work orders. Our host dropped to the ground in a heap after his father was out of sight. He fished through his tools until he found the beam torch. He picked it up, put it to his own neck, and tried to flick the switch. We were ready. All Nana Squad's manning ligaments near the adductor pollicis meshed together and locked our host's thumb in place. Small movements are much easier to halt. We didn't release our inner clamp until he moved the tool an arm length away. It tumbled to the ground. Folks dying all the time down here, our host commented. You're telling me I got the only set of nanos that can prevent it? We didn't answer. It took him a while to get back to work. Later that night, he installed a smaller seat behind the pilots for little Sandy. An odd silence had fallen over the Lev's letter. Sightings of competing Lev's letters decreased. Some have gone their separate routes. Others may be lurking on intercept courses to strike. There is the occasional muffled rumble from the undercarriage dropping down a shallow slope. The ultralight polymer frame should stay intact against such hits. We try not to think about it. Little Sandy's breathing swishes over the calm like a pacifying promise. Near the outer fringes of Callisto's settled underground, we see another left letter tumble aimlessly into the wall of a crater. The explosion is bright, but quiet. The map readout shows the driver has chosen a dangerous path, one that requires careful slotting through thin channels. Our host has chosen a route with very few furrows to deal with. We feel a sudden fluctuation across the neural pathways and begin preliminary analyses. At 16, our host constantly has hormones kicking in at odd times and peaking various emotions. The influx of neural activity may be nothing. Nonetheless, we keep a close eye on any sudden movements or turns. Then our host sighs and gets really shaky. His mouth has gone dry, and we compensate. He examines the sprawling terrain through the canopy glass. It's an empty stretch, but he's more scared than ever. I can see Jupiter's light, Sandy calls out. Just a bit of it, but it's so bright. Our host ignores her. Can you see it? Look, she tries again. Still, he ignores her. That's when we know something is wrong. The fluorescent semiconductors we have primed throughout our host's body light up and guide us like beacons. Seeking out the faintest anomalies, we warm micronic pulse charges at the ready. It has to end, he whispered. There's no point. He takes a deep breath and repeats it. It has to end. We keep a close watch on his wrist and finger joints on the yoke. The left letter is moving too fast for us to anticipate his move, but we will try. We won't let him drive us into oblivion. Our host kicks his foot over 30 centimeters. He flicks open a panel and presses a switch on the floor. All throttle conduits fire at once. There's a soft jiggle of acceleration, and then he and Sandy are thrown back. The left letter's hydrazine rockets scream. The runner's lift and canopy views become more sky than land. The vehicle's nose is angled upward, but we continue to race across the terrain. The accelerator's locked into full push, our host yells. I'm talking to you, Nanos. You better be listening. We're going to win, Sandy squeals with delight. This is super fast. A quick scan of the digigages shows that this burnout will spend all the fuel in the next 45 seconds. A burst of speed, but not nearly enough to last the race. It is more likely that a patrol will intercept us once fuel is depleted. 
Our host unfastens his glove and puts his hand open-palmed on the control panel. I suggest you nanos get in there and help the computer process this, or the fuel exchange will fail hard and light us up bright enough to see us from Uranus. According to the thermal fluxes, our host is correct. Reluctantly, we order 7.5% of our teams to exit immediately through the skin pores and into the Levslander control boards. Oh, that hurts. Forgot how much, our host mutters as he doubles over. We had to pull nanos from his deltoid and abdomen muscles. The loss of water distributors left him susceptible to cramping. We have also redistributed nanosquads throughout the muscle tissue to prevent any sudden moves by our host. We don't have him locked up, but we can hinder all quick and minute movements. <clears throat> Wasn't expecting that, he coughs. Well played, nanos. He flexes his hand. He shuts his eyes, squinting hard to keep them shut. We are blind. Nano squads call in from all over, trying to devise a plan. Those closest to the epidermal layer panic and try echolocation. He opens his eyes quickly, reaches over, and attempts to adjust steering. His movements are fitful. We have slowed his inhibited ligament competencies, but not by much. You have to let me do this, he mutters through his teeth. Nanosquads throughout his steering hand fight to deter his movements while the optical team relays what's being seen. A vertical wall of rock approaches straight ahead. There is no way to avoid it. You won't get in the way this time, our host hisses out. I know you too well. He's right. Transferring some of us into the Levslater's console left the rest of us too weak to stop him. But we must try. What are you saying, Sandy asks. Her voice strains against the increased acceleration. I heard you. Nothing, he answers with a heavy sigh. We're good here. After much struggling, our host relents. He was only able to adjust the steering 18.749 degrees clockwise. He sighs and stops fighting us. A swell of serotonin is released. Our host is relieved, as if the minor course change was all he wanted. He takes his hand off the yoke. It's locked in place. This is not good. Now we can't adjust course without his help. A user lock code appears on the main console. Our host grunts as he unrolls a mag strip and covers the console panel. Sandy screams, There's a crater coming! Don't worry, he says. Our host won't look up and show us, keeping his eyes locked on the Levslutter floor. The switch he has kicked stares back at us. How did we miss it? We relay a message to the nanos, working within the onboard computer's processor, to see if they have the fuel exchange under control. The processor is running within safe parameters. We are not needed, they answer back. There was no fuel exchange danger. Using our nanos within the onboard computer, we access the view screen and see that our course remains a direct line to the Valhalla crater wall. Fifteen seconds until impact, the engine turbines screech. The Lev's letter continues to build up speed. Redirect, we signal to our nano team, within the Lev's letter's computer. Interference, we answer back. The mag strip. Eight seconds. Our host leans back and stares straight ahead. It's going to be something else, eh? Still crouching from the pain, he turns around and grabs little Sandy's hand. Her gloved hand rests in our host's uncovered hand. Don't worry, and try not to close your eyes. I want you to see this head on, he tells her. Three seconds. Everything in the Lev's letter is physically locked. Our host has seen to that. We have no way to slow the pulse rockets or adjust the steering. 
Stabilizing spouts are disconnected. Not enough time to physically reconnect the hoses. Then, the impact. We will always wonder what it was like for our host in Little Sandy. Our sensory processors run at an exponentially faster rate, so time is observed differently. We took in the cacophony of images and sounds, one by one, microsecond by microsecond. The icy black gleam of the Valhalla crater wall. The left letter runners connecting with the lower lip of the wall first. The suspension coils protesting. The angle of the crater wall, and then the left letter's nose lifting as it rode up the slanted wall. The slight turn keeping the left letter from hitting head-on, an angle we hadn't originally detected. And then the light of Jupiter filling the canopy shell, still so far away, but glorious. The left letter engines pushing and pushing until we cleared right off of Callisto. Being weightless with Callisto shrinking behind us. The main engines finally dying out. Little Sandy gasping. Our nano team returns from the onboard computer and are just as confused as the rest of us. Why didn't our host tell us? Was it a matter of trust, or was it his way of joking? It worked, he said, sounding a little surprised. Sandy, I'm going to switch comm channels for a sec, our host says. I got some Miss Dee Dee songs if you want, your favorite. Are you calling your sweetie? She teases and makes a kissy face. Yeah, he says, you got me. She returns to gazing out the canopy shell. Our host doesn't open the emergency comm. Instead, he starts talking to the air. Okay, listen, you little nanos, because I know you can all hear. I'm done, and I've been done a while, and I don't care. We got enough rations here for a small caloric intake to last till Ganymede. You can't force me to eat. Well, maybe you can, but I doubt it. Along the way, you're going to have to decide when to leave me and start helping her. If you decide to stay with me... He punches a few keys on the main console and brings up a chart. You'll see that there's a far less chance that we'll both make it. But if you leave me and transfer to Sandy, well, the chances for one of us surviving increases greatly, rather than the chance for both of us dropping the less than 30%. We read the chart and run a million scenarios within the next 5.8307 seconds. The numbers are horrible, and we hate our host for being correct. Our time is short but we'll continue to register new ways to keep them both alive. Our host's eyes watch little Sandy for several moments. We can translate his size, clicks a tongue, and bouncing knee. Our host is relaxed. It's in that time that we realize the subsequent attempts of his own life were never true attempts. Not after that initial try off the cavern cliff. He was only testing the limits to see when and how we would interfere. His way of learning about us. Our host learned how to use us beyond routine maintenance. Still, we wish he had shared his plan. Perhaps we might have supported him. But not once little Sandy was involved. He couldn't risk our interference. We understand. As we protect him, he had to protect her. Various nanosquads compile the data and relay the message that we should have known better. His uncovered hand goes up to pet her helmet, as if he can feel her floating hair but he pulls away. Our guess was that he didn't want to interrupt her. She continues to watch as Jupiter rotates into the dark crescent. The vaporous atmosphere gleams off the horizon like wisps of her hair. We want our host to put his glove back on. It is much colder up here, and the left letter's interior atmosphere controls are set to minimum. He doesn't. Instead, he just stares at his sister as she gazes outside. 
The other Jovian moons begin to glow as the left slider stabilizers alter course. Our host removes the mag strip from the control panel. Sandy's pointing and saying something. Our host turns the comm channel back on. Look at the moons. They're each kind of a different color. I didn't know that. Sandy's voice is full of magic. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that, our host says, and drags his finger from moon to moon. When do we have to go back? Sandy asks. Our host hesitates. I'm taking you to a new place, a far away, better place. Really? They have... He brings up asylum and immigration laws for Ganymede on the view screen and reviews them. Uh, it's just a better place. Little Sandy nods. We can't tell if she understands. Our host's shoulder and neck muscles loosen. He releases his fasteners from the pilot's seat. Sandy sees this and releases hers. We begin initial contact procedures with her nanosquads. Our host lets out a heavy breath. Perhaps he is glad he won't have to explain further. Or he is happy Sandy isn't upset. Brother and sister smile at one another. Sandy puts her gloved hand on his and then floats over and pulls him into a hug. Thank you. I don't care where we go. She doesn't look back at Callisto. Our host holds her tight. Gingerly, he opens a thin crevice at the shoulder of Sandy's Enviro suit. We drift from his arms to his hands and then from his fingertips onto little Sandy's shoulders. He is a champion and doesn't let out the slightest grunt through what must be incredible pain. Little Sandy is oblivious to the exchange. After several moments, our host lets go and we see him through another's eyes for the first time. He is much larger and stronger than he appeared in mirrors and pics. He struggles to return to his seat and fastens the safety belts. We had to remove most muscle and bone bonds. Finally, he locks his body into the seat and closes the last clasp. His breathing grows shallow and he closes his eyes. Those of us who have opted to remain with him have taken on multiple system responsibilities. It has never been done, and most nanos will have to work frantically and nonstop, but we are confident that we won't fail. It is our host's fault, really. For the last few years, he's taught us how to counter death. Perhaps there's a way to relay the message that he will probably survive the trip due to our ingenuity. A simple pixelated dispatch across the view screen telling him we found a way to keep him alive. But we decide to keep it a surprise. It's only fair. He didn't tell us about his flying off the damn moon plan. When it gets incredibly difficult, we'll just remind ourselves. Above all else, we must keep our host alive. And there you go. Huge thank you to Doug. Doug, thank you so much. It's an honour to have you on. And Will, thank you indeed. Yes, please we'll have more of your voice, sir. That is that is a definite thank you indeed, gentlemen. So <laughs> it's just it's quite un- unbelievable that it's actually about to happen. We have Fiction Crawler 18 by Matthew Sanborn Smith. Heidi Ho Soferinos, Fiction Crawler 18. Stories. Online. Free. I tell you about them. Let's go. Suzanne Palmer has a fantastic story at ClarksWorldMagazine.com called 33% Joe. 33% of Joe is made up of cybernetic body parts replacing the old fleshy stuff that's been blown off in various battles in a future war inside American borders. His cyber bits are in constant conversation with one another. Each has its own delightful personality. Each keeps its own agenda. There's some bad blood between Joe's heart and spleen, and that might not be a pun. This would have been an easy concept to write badly, but Palmer pulls it off like a field surgeon pulling off your mangled limb. 
If it's possible to find a goofy side of war, she does just that. Not that she holds back from the utter despair of a man running into the meat grinder of battle again and again, or the anguish that drives him to do so. Gone are the days when a serious injury was a ticket back home. What does it do to a soldier when being damaged beyond reason is no reason to leave? To please his impossible to please mother, Joe goes back into the fire repeatedly, hoping his next trip will be his last. Along the way, he's becoming his own little ship of Theseus. Is Joe still Joe? If not, when does he become not Joe? Honestly, it would have been a lot easier for Theseus to tell had the boards of his ship been artificially intelligent. And at 33%, Joe is sufficiently not Joe enough to find meaning in his life by way of a tastier biscuit. And that's not a euphemism. But let us now bounce to Bane.com and Frederick Pohl's stand-up-and-take-notice story, Day Million. The amazing thing about this 1966 piece is how not old it feels. Although some of the assumptions the story makes about its own content and audience feel rooted in the past, the style reads a lot like something written in the 1990s, when transhumanism was the hottest thing going in the field. We spend an awful lot of this very short story dealing with the gender of one of the characters in a way that might be a bridge between our times, quite progressive for then, less so for us. But points for going there, Fred. Day Million is a simple boy-meets-girl story told in a complicated way. Pole throws ideas at you like he's sawdusting circus grounds, all of it to illustrate how weird the far future will be. He does his damnedest to pack a universe into 2200 words, and yes, a lot spills over the sides. I love this technique and picked it up from people like Paul DeFilippo and Adam Troy Castro, who I imagine were influenced by Pole, among others. Our couple in Day Million live in physical bodies and interact with the world so long as the mood strikes them. Basic bodily functions vital to us are optional to them. Marriage is more like a snapshot than a documentary. And the few sentences on starship propulsion aren't meant to be understood, but I had to read them a few times just to attain the level of misunderstanding that I now have. Stories like this should be experienced rather than explained, so forgive me for even bringing it up. At lightspeedmagazine.com, you'll find a pocket of warmth called Maybe Look Up by Jess Barber. Maybe Look Up is about a woman who has the chance to go back in time for one half hour and change something in her past. But what to change? What's the crucial turning point that's going to transform her life? And would it transform it for the better? What's the not-so-crucial bit that she can't let go of the most? She and her friend, An Lee, comb through the banal details of her life, making a list of possible changes. But the catch about changing everything after a certain point is losing all the parts of everything that you don't want to change. Maybe Look Up is a beautiful story, miring you in the small and unimportant details of 10 or 30,000 days on Earth that catch a person by surprise much the way this story does, by adding up to a life when you least expect it. If we can put aside the intensely packaged dramas of the movies, television, books, and news that we're constantly consuming, we might remember our personal time here isn't a series of big events. It's more a journey of non-events during in which the unwieldy supertanker of our existence changes direction more slowly than we can perceive. Yes, there's always an iceberg at the end, but we're going to spend almost no time there at all. So instead of concentrating on that, just take a second now, breathe deeply, and look out upon the vast gray sea. I have not read enough Stanislaw M. There's a confession none of you care about. I wouldn't even have read Lem's The Seventh Voyage over at Lem.pl if Nick Mamatas hadn't reviewed the graphic novel based on Lem's work and remarked that the original story is good and truly funny. He was right. For a story that takes place over 640 light years from Earth, the first words are golden. It was on a Monday, April 2nd. 
So E. John Titchy is a guy who's been alone on a spaceship for two years and finds that ship largely unsteerable due to an accident and unrepairable by a single person. Because of his jacked-up space rudder, he's flying into a part of space containing 147 gravitational vortices, which, I guess, is bad. Vortices will get you time loops, of course, as all you science fictional physicists know, like a whole Zoe Keating concert's worth of loops. So past and future versions of himself keep popping up on the ship. Problem solved, right? He's now got help to fix the damn thing. Well, it turns out he's not big on forethought, and he's such a stubborn asshole in any time that he can't get along with himself long enough to take care of business. Things get crazy enough that he loses track of which one of himself he is. And then, to my delight, things get exponentially crazier. Read this one sober and after a good night's sleep, because it feels like reading a game of three-card Monty played with half the deck. Sit back and enjoy as he struggles with himself. Well, I guess we all struggle with ourselves, but let's not dwell on that when we can laugh at this jerk instead. Speaking of time loops, let's jump forward to the present at another site that I don't think I've mentioned here before, much to my embarrassment. Take a look at a story called Joyride by Amon Sabet at Kaleidotrope.net. My friend Patrick Hester from the Functional Nerds podcast has often complained about the present not keeping up with the past's future by asking aloud, Where's my flying car? To which I respond, We already have flying cars. They're called airplanes. But Joyride features the type of flying car that I suspect Patrick is truly after. Louisa works as a mechanic once she's done with her high school classes for the day and likes breaking the rules with her friend Marisol once she's done doing that. Marisol's been bounced up a rung on the social ladder thanks to her stepfather, and though they're still buds, Louisa's a little concerned she's going to be left behind at some point. As Louisa gets comfortable in the flying car Marisol has stolen from her old man, she's also concerned that Marisol never tells her exactly what sort of trouble they'll be getting into until they're deep into it. When they stop by to pick up Marisol's rich girlfriend, Claire, Louisa's less happy on both fronts. But Claire's got connections and knowledge, and those complement Louisa's mechanical skills, especially useful when Marisol decides to illegally cross the border into Mexico. Marisol's stepfather and the police try to stop them, both remotely and up close in the middle of the sky, respectively. It reminded me of Bruce Spefke's seminal short story, Cyberpunk. No, that's the name of the story. This is not a who's on first bit. The story's name is Cyberpunk, and the genre was named after it by Gardner Dozois. It had been so long since I'd read the Bethke story, I couldn't even remember what happened in it. But looking at it again, I see the connections between the two. Kids use their grasp of current-to-them technology to have fun and cause problems for their parents, the main difference being you can sympathize with Sabet's characters and their motivations. Turns out Marisol's got some legit reasons for doing what she's doing, but that doesn't mean the girls are going to get into any less trouble. Sabet's really good at keeping the story rolling and giving the reader a good sense of his characters in the little bit of space a short story affords. He turns a wild night out into an adventure with heart. Go enjoy it! Things here in the United States feel like they're changing rapidly, so much so I don't know how life will be different from the time I record to the time you hear this. As I write this, we are in night six of the nationwide and worldwide protests against police brutality which were sparked by the murder of George Floyd. This last story I'll talk about feels appropriate right now. Nisi Shaw has a series of articles on Tor.com called History of Black Science Fiction, and through one of her posts, she introduced me and many others to a story called The Space Traders by the late law professor and activist Derek Bell. 
The story itself is not at Tor.com, but instead on a janky PDF file at whgbetc.com. Like, there's one paragraph jammed with dialogue between two different characters, and another with a footnote dropped into the middle of it. Not an asterisk, but the footnote itself. You can find a more readable version if you get your hands on the first Dark Matter anthology, edited by Sherry R. Thomas. But the point of Fiction Crawler is to recommend free online fiction, and if you can get past the humps I've mentioned, you won't have too much trouble reading it. A bunch of aliens come down to the United States on January 1st, 2000 to offer a deal. They'll give the country piles of gold, safe and free energy, and chemicals to totally clean up the environment. What they want in return is every African American in the country. And the country has to decide on the deal by January 17th, the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The premise is ridiculous, like the aliens are intent on twisting the knife specifically on American racism against its black population. But what plays out from there feels like a slow-motion horror story. This 1992 story presumes a turn-of-the-millennium conservative government on the edge of bankruptcy. As you can guess, their decision is pretty much made by day one, though they go through the motions of debate, political wrangling, and legal hoop-jumping they need to make it happen. Given what we've seen in the past week here in 2020, I feel certain a similar situation now would have played out differently, but that's not really the point. The point is how the characters react, and the foregone conclusion by both the aliens and the white organizations in the story that a part of this country's citizenry is indeed property. That's what the story really has to say, and that's what turns your stomach as you're reading through. Read this one and face up to what it suggests about your country, whatever country that is, and do your part to make it unthinkable in the future. Well, that's it. That's every pair of shoes in the place. Links to all these stories are in the show notes, including Bethke's Cyberpunk. Go read them all and get yourself cultured up. If you think I'm swell, and why wouldn't you, feel free to explore my other creative delights at matthewsanbornsmith.com or support me at patreon.com slash matthewsanbornsmith. Unless Tony jettisons me from this comfy space couch for placing roulette bets on the Logan's Run carousel, I'm sure you'll hear from me again in just another few years. Don't take any wooden nickels. Or do. I don't care. <laughs> I see him, man. Oh, yeah, man. Wait through you for that, for God's sake. <laughs> it's fantastic. Like I said, there is links to all Matt, Matt's stories that he's kind of talked about there, and the Matthew site as well. Go and say hello to the lad. Yes, Matthew, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, indeedy. And that is today's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. It's been an honour. It's been a miracle we're getting that one, that fiction crawler there. Three, yeah. Man, how, how just that didn't realise that as well. Anyway, I'd just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly Won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed 
by the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. 